Welcome to Soma Community Church. As Riley said, happy Halloween, but even for better for us believers, happy Reformation Day. And you're saying, what does that mean? Um, It commemorates the day in 1517 when a German monk by the name of Martin Luther walked up to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed his 95 thesis or propositions to the church door. And he chose this day, October 31st, because he knew the church would be full the next day on on November 1st for All Saints Day. Um, And what he was trying to do is is stop some of the nonsense that was going on in, in the church that day. And what I mean by that is it was common practice, common practice since the people didn't have the Bible. The Bible was written in Latin. The normal person didn't know Latin, couldn't read it. So they were held subject to the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the things they did was they sold indulgences. They sold indulgences. And what that means is you could pay and get your sins pardoned. So that means if you were rich enough, you could do whatever you wanted, and then you could just pay and have your sins forgiven. I was thinking, boy, if we could do that today, it'd be great, because you'd have an app on your phone, right? You would go to your indulgent app, it'd be a cool little logo, and you could go through a menu and just pick out what you did, or even in the future, what you're going to do, and get it covered. I almost see it like even like an Amazon subscribe and save. My personal favorite, subscribe and save. And you could just say, you know what, I'm going to need this covered and this covered and this covered next month, so I'll do it. So by seeing that, we know that man's sin continues from old through this period with Martin Luther and even today. Um, For most people, God is a custom, and he's not taken seriously. Um, A man can believe he can act like he wants and just get forgiveness later. I mean, why obey? Why obey? If you're living your best life now, why? Why stop it cold, knowing that God would probably say, what you're doing, you cannot do. And like we talked about it last week, and, and the week before, in 4324, God is saying, come and obey. Your, your sins are a burden to him. So that's one of the things that Isaiah is going through now, is really knowing God. And in Hosea 6.6, it says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And it's no coincidence when you think about this in this time with Martin Luther, he really wanted to get the Bible into the hands of the common man. That way, like he said, someone out plowing their field or a schoolboy can sit there and recite passages from the Bible to himself while he's working. So in a God sort of coincidence, what took place? The printing press came about. Um, This was incredible technology, if you think about it. It was invented in 1440. Um, And I know we don't think it's impressive, but back then it was very impressive to think 
that Martin Luther could produce a 8 to 16 page, what they called pamphlet, and that could be done in a day and get out to people. Amazing. I think it was very impressive for them that one year he got out 14,000 pamphlets, all teaching on Jesus and getting his word out in people's hands. Amazing. And I don't think we can fully understand how impressed that is with our technology. Because right now, someone's taking a picture of their brunch and sending it out, and over a million people will see it within hours. So what Martin Luther, what Martin Luther could do in, in eight to nine hours, we can do in just seconds. But this day is a really big deal. It's a really big deal if you stop and think about it, because the books in your hand or the apps on your phone with the Bible wouldn't have taken place as readily as this act of God to move on Martin Luther and do this reformation. So it's a big deal. So considering what a big deal that is, I was thinking, you know, on Easter, we say he is risen. And churches around the world on Palm Sunday, well, maybe not around the world, maybe in this valley. Okay, churches, our church only on Palm Sunday says, he has ridden. So maybe, maybe today we should say something like, he has written. My wife's saying no. Okay. All right. I'll get started then. So where are we going today? Where are we going today? Well, we're going to look at a section that Isaiah, in Isaiah, that speaks to God as our deliverer. He is our deliverer. And therefore, we're going to get another sneak peek at Jesus. So we're going to cover Isaiah 44, 24, through to Isaiah, well, I'm sorry, the passage, this whole entire section on God as deliverer starts in 44.24 and ends after 48. We're not going to go that far today. We're going to start by looking at how God uses an earthly deliverer for his people to give us a picture of the real and ultimate deliverer, Jesus. In fact, this earthly redeemer has slowly been coming into focus for us, if you saw that. It's slowly coming into focus, and so much we will see today that we actually will get a name of this earthly deliverer. Um, What's so amazing about that, we get the name, and then 150 years later, he will be born. So the ruler God is using is named Cyrus. Cyrus comes well after the life and the ministries of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then we're going to see him big time in the book of Ezra. So Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up, the spirit of Cyrus, 
king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing. Verse 2. Thus, thus says king Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And this proclamation by this king would stand strong through all the future kings that would come after him, ensuring that the building of Jerusalem and the temple continued. So today, we're going to look at the passage concerning Cyrus in the following ways. We're going to look at 44, 24 through 28, and it's going to be Jerusalem rebuild. Jerusalem's rebuild. And then 45, 1 through 8, is God's promised conqueror. God's promised conqueror. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to thank you so much for, for this morning and what this day means in history and how it was just an eye-opening experience that we stopped and shook off traditions and customs and started learning really about you and getting your word out to people. Simply amazing. May we never take it for granted. May we love it always, having this word from you in our hands that we can read, that we can memorize, that we can hide in our heart. And we thank you for today. We thank you that just how amazing you are with everything else that you just did the simple stuff to you, but it's awe-blowing to us that we can see you calling out how you're going to bring the people back after you promised to put them in punishment. May our hearts and minds be open. Holy Spirit, may you just quiet our souls and open them up to hear your word. Amen. So the passage, let's go through it, starting at verse 24. Who says the Lord your Redeemer, who form, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up the ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and at the temple, your foundation shall be laid. 45, the, chapter 1, I mean, chapter 45, verse 1. 
Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So shower, O heavens, from above. Let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So Isaiah has been revealing God's message so that they understand their need. He's been revealing the message to Judah so they understand their need for deliverance from their spiritual sinfulness. In the last couple of weeks, God has really taken us through his heated argument about the worthlessness of idols. And we know on that day they had the remnants of whatever they would use and make an idol. And we know on our day, an idol is anything that takes us away from God. So he had promised his people punishment, and now he's going to release his people to go back to their home after Cyrus conquers Babylon. And we're going to see today in today's passage in 4424 another reminder much like we saw in 44 chapter 44 verses 6 through 8 that says I am the God who made all things. And then almost at the end of our passage when we get to 7 he's going to bookend it and he's going to tell us I am the God that does all things. And then we're going to end today in verse 8 which is a really joyful prayer for God's righteousness to come and prevail throughout the whole world. So we're going to start in verses 24 through 28 in chapter 44. That's Jerusalem rebuilt. Jerusalem rebuilt. 24 says, Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. We see the Lord as their Redeemer. He demonstrates what they need. They need deliverance. God says, hey, I formed you in the womb. And when you think about it, this is a powerful statement. He's telling them, before you were even created, I knew you. Before you arrived on earth, I knew exactly what you are and I ordered everything. This shows us that God decides. 
God decides who's in relation with him. It's not based on us. It's not based on our human will. Because if it was, I tell you truthfully, we would never choose him. And then God reminds us that he alone made, stretched, and spread out everything. He needs no one to help him. And he alone does it. And he alone decides who to commune with. So God starts off this section by making sure we know he did all of this himself. He's telling us that I did this myself. Verses 25 through 26 says, Who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners? Who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish? Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. We see something that I tell you about, at least in my community group, that, that repeated words. So here we see who. Who, so it gets our attention. Verse 25 points to the words unfulfilled, and God calls these people diviners. And he calls the wise men liars. And he makes their knowledge foolish. And what we had here in the early day, we had a lot of fakes that, they attached themselves to earthly kings like a remora. And they were false prophets who dared not say anything bad about the king because they wanted to remain in those good graces and live that lavish lifestyle. And a German theologian named Klaus Westermann, Klaus Westermann said, we now possess a wide, astonishing knowledge of Babylonian literature including a plethora of oracles addressed to Babylonian and Assyrian kings, all, all of which are messages of hope without a single forecast of the doom that was about to fall on them. So we see in the last of verse 25 that God covers the gamut of this foolishness by turning wise men back and making their knowledge foolish. So, with the signs and diviners, God is calling out false prophets, and these false prophets claim to have a special power, and they claim to have a way to get this mystic knowledge. And then he also covers the wise men who think because of their human abilities that they possess, they're able to give out of their own wisdom, out of their accumulated wisdom, these special words to solve life's issues. They may be wise in human standards, but God is saying they are not my messengers. They trust only in themselves and their idols. So when Cyrus has achieved the known success God had started this 150 plus years prior. Now, now all these other gods, these, these diviners, are stating it post-haste. They couldn't even get it like God did 150 years prior to Cyrus's even being born. Verse 
Jeremiah talks about this in 48, 29 through 30. Jeremiah 48, 29 through 30. He says, We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness and pride and his arrogance and the haughtiness of his heart. I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false and his deeds are false. God says in verse 26 here in 44 that he confirms his message through his servant. It says, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers? Who says of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and the cities of Jerusalem, they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins. Humans in their own power, because they want control, they do not want to surrender that control. They want to know when this will happen and when they will be in the new Jerusalem. But God says, no, no, in my time. Reminded me of Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. So in Acts chapter 1, 6 and 8, we have the disciples um, are asking Jesus when God would end this occupation and they would have their kingdom, this future kingdom that we're still waiting for. So when they would come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, the disciples would receive this Holy Spirit on Pentecost and become messengers for God and share the good news about the greatest Redeemer that has come. So talking about Pentecost, that's led me to think, maybe, maybe we should do something in the morning of Pentecost Sunday. I'm still working on it. I don't have anything. Right now I have, he has Pentecosted, but that makes no sense. So God is also sharing a prediction that Jerusalem will be built and will be inhabited. In verse 27, 28, he says, Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built in the temple. Your foundations will be laid. What's cool about this is like we saw in previous weeks, is verse 27 is giving us another Exodus picture of, of returning to the promised land and God removing all their obstacles, all their obstacles. I don't know if you saw in Ezra, but that was another one of that Exodus picture. If you remember when the, when the Israelites were leaving Egypt, God had the, the Egyptians give them all kinds of wealth to leave, and when they were leaving Babylon or leaving Persia, Ezra, I mean, Cyrus had decreed that everyone give them free will offerings. They give them stuff to take with them. 
So we get a picture of that, that Exodus leaving. We also see it in Psalm 77, 19. Psalm 77, 19 says, Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. 27 gives us that assurance that from the full return from the journey to the arrival will be by God. So not just the arrival, the full journey from leaving to getting there. And we saw that by Cyrus's decree in Ezra where he said, give them your wealth for their journey to head back to Jerusalem. And once they got there, they would have wealth to build the temple. So if anyone had a question like how, after verse 27, God answers it right here next. It says, Cyrus will be the shepherd that will figuratively guide God's people. Um, And going through the study this week, boy, calling out Cyrus 150 years before he was even born really caused a lot of damage to human wisdom. Uh, That's the wisdom like we see in 25. Making wild claims like there's no way this was done in advance, that God had, this had to have been written after Cyrus did it and inserted in the Bible. Um, But let's see. As we've gone through Isaiah, what have we seen? So it's like, I don't know who does this, if it's just literature professors that are doing this, but we see stark names of, of Jesus early on in chapter 7, calling him, you know, wonderful counselor, Emmanuel. I mean, we see those names. Um, God prophesies victories and exile and returns, but the name Cyrus to them seems so impossible. But you know what? We see amazing prophecies of people's names elsewhere, elsewhere, like in 1 Kings 13.2. 1 Kings 13.2, a prophet told Jeroboam about a future son that would come by name and that he would obey God. And what's interesting is the time frame where this occurred is much greater than here. Isaiah, through God, just gave us Cyrus's name only 150 years in advance before his birth. So right here in 1 Kings 3, 2, from Jeroboam to the arrival of Josiah is approximately two, almost 300 years. It's from 640 B.C. all the way down to 300. So we see nothing's too big for God. It's human wisdom that's limited and can blow our minds. So the end of verse 28, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. What I got to do, too, is going through this, I I spent a lot of time in some of my favorite books like Ezra and Nehemiah, rereading them and going over from the exile to just the struggles they had once they got into the promised land and building this and just seeing God work in that way. And so you see Cyrus proclaiming them can go. And if you remember those books, you remember all the turns there where they're being threatened that you will not build this, even getting a stay of that order 
but they didn't listen. They sent like what we would do in a appeal to the court and the king Darius read Cyrus's letter and allowed them to go on and furthermore just just in a pure god thing told the local leaders that were trying to stop this hey send them food hey send them wood take care of them so it just backfired on them completely okay so god's promised conqueror Chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. So God now is moving. He's now moving from ensuring his people know they have a deliverer to describing this deliverer's exploits and how they fit into God's purpose purpose for him. It is something that went from a promise of a name to now how it will happen. God is showing them that Jerusalem will be restored and one day all this people will be back together. At this stage in history though, when this initially occurs, it's horrible. It's horrible when you go through this with the war that takes place and the good things that we're talking about are going to happen later, much later. Because we know Cyrus is going to quickly lay waste to many cities and people, all that God's leading. And we went through this, right? We went through this earlier in Isaiah. If you look back, and I'll read it to you, Isaiah 41, 3 through 4, as we were getting that out-of-focus picture of this deliverer, and we were getting the signs of what he was doing, we got to see he had said, he pursues them, and passes on safely. By pass his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling out the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and, and with the last, I am he. And that part in verse 3 we went over says he pursues them and passes safely. By pass his feet have not trod. The, the picture there that we're given is of a horse running through, leaving disaster in its wake, and its feet have not even touched the ground. And we know that's what happened. Um, God made Cyrus in a very incredible destroyer, him and his army. Um, at that time, the most incredible destroyer the world had seen up to that point, and he unknowingly filled God's promises to those evil nations that God sent him to. Verses 2 and 6 are a unit, and they speak of Cyrus. Um, 2 and 3 tells us God has a divine purpose for him. Now, if you think about it, Cyrus was used by God for his purposes, to demonstrate his divine power, much like we saw God used Pharaoh. Um, He used Pharaoh to demonstrate his power, before the exodus took place. And we know Cyrus, as much as we see here, did not become a follower of God. He did not lead the world into worshiping God like he had an opportunity to be. It's sad. Um, He was given an opportunity to do so. He knew prophets of God that no doubt told him about God's prophecies concerning him. 
but he failed. He did do good, though. We remember from looking at what Assyria did to people they captured. There were captives, and also Babylon. Um, Cyrus changed the way they dealt with the spoils of war. Uh, like we said before, in the northern ten kingdoms was an example of this. When you were conquered, the king marched the captives off to a new land, grabbed up other people he conquered, and put them into your homeland, completely wiping that people out. And that's what happened to the northern kingdom. And what we see here, though, to fulfill God's prophecy, what he told us, that it shall be rebuilt and they shall return. When Cyrus delivered a victory, he said, you can go home. You can go home to your homelands. So they were allowed to return, and we saw that in Ezra. He did bad, though. He did bad, knowing, no doubt, it was probably Daniel that shared the prophecy concerning him. Um, but when he won, he made a speech and declared that this was a multifaceted worship. Um, he proclaimed that all the gods had won and they all deserved a prize. Amazing. Amazing. So, but it worked to what God wanted ultimately. In Ezra 1.3, in Ezra 1.3, it said, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So we see where he kind of got it wrong. If you look at, if you heard the end of that, he mistakenly thought God was just like a tribal God that was only for the people of Judah. He said, he's the God who is in Jerusalem wrong. Um, so he basically equated the creator God who says he's the first and last and the maker of all. He equated him to the other arts and crafts gods. Verse 45, 1. Let's dive into this. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him that gates may not be closed. So we see words like grafts, subdue, open, demonstrating God's purpose here. The picture of God taking Cyrus by the right hand gives us this picture of God choosing him and giving him the strength and leading him as a man onto the world stage. And we know Cyrus had easy, decisive conquests, and they're seen in the words like subdue, strip, or basically loose the, bel the belts of kings. Open, and then once open, not being able to be closed. His abilities were marveled at the others at this time. His armies were not stopped by anything. Other armies, other kings, other cities or palace gates. You got to imagine, back then, Babylonia had the most amazing, amazing fortified structures, 
They were works of art, and they were powerful. And he went right through it. God said, I will go before you, I will level it. And going before that and making the way level, we see that. We see that in Revelation also, and in the passages that talk about that, that he's going to do that for us too, to get back to him. But this is a different kind. This was a providing a clear path for destruction to meet his will. Verse 2 says, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. In verse 2, God is telling us well beforehand, well beforehand this even takes place. He says, no need to think, no need to think you could help, Cyrus. I got this. You will be on that horse, the feet doesn't hit the ground. I got all this. I will do it myself. Level, the word level here is a picture. It's a picture of going out to what we might see like the redwoods, a place with huge tall trees and almost instantly making it a field. And it is showing us that God will level natural and man-made barriers before Cyrus. They're all coming down. Places that were believed to be magnificent and glorious, God will come in and obliterate them like a mist. Verse 3, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you know, you may know that I, it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. So God is going to give Cyrus a treasure to go with the fame that God is going to give him. And that's perfect for a man, right? That's all they need. Darkness here means what is hidden away. God does this that Cyrus will know that his rule is being managed by God for his purposes. You know, because if Cyrus would have stopped and thought for a moment and realized, you know, this is just all too easy. This is not out of anything glorious I'm doing. It's all too easy. And then if he would have said, you know what, those prophets that told me about this, let me go talk to them and find out more about this, like Daniel and others. He might have just heard what God said about it, and it, he might have become a believer. Period. Verse 4. And for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. The great news here is we see in, in this verse that God's people are always on his mind. And much like we saw last week, right, when we talked about the name of Jacob and Israel showing the past of God's people, the deceiver in Jacob, before he became chosen and became Israel, we see it again here, right? It talks about his servant, Jacob, and then his chosen Israel. So God does this to give us this cool picture of this. And also, servant here is the status of God's people 
and chosen, the word chosen, shows this, that the status is based on him and his will. So you can take a moment and praise God that it's not based on you earning it. Now, in the interest of his people, God is telling Cyrus, you know, I called you out. I called you by your name. I chose you. And even though you do not know me, I am going to raise you up for a time as this, and I will give you a title of honor, and you are going to be used to fulfill my purpose. Again, much like Pharaoh, God in his sovereign role Our God does not need the cooperation. He didn't need Cyrus to sign off. If we saw, he called Cyrus, Cyrus before he was even born. He didn't need his cooperation to call him, to make him fulfill his purposes. Um, They do not get a say. And so much like we read in 45.1, he grasped Cyrus by the right hand and, and let him out. Cyrus did not see God's outstretched arm. God didn't go 90 and Cyrus go 10. God reached out and grasped that hand. God says, you do not know me at the end of verse 4. You do not know me. That identifies that Cyrus had entered the world stage and didn't know who brought him there. And he didn't know that the only God of the entire universe was using him as a tool for his purpose. For in Isaiah 10.15, Isaiah 10.15, we went over earlier, it says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Hews is an old language word, means chops. Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it. As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or if a staff should lift him who was not wood. So 5b through 6c is going to start a new section. It says, I equip you, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west there is none besides me. So 5b reiterates, much like we see in these sections, that God reminds him that Cyrus, you didn't choose me, you don't know me. Uh, worldwide, worldwide is a phrase used here, from the rising of the sun to where it sets in the west. Covers all that. Um, it's the knowledge of God was promised through Abraham, and it's this choosing. God was promised through Abraham and his descendants, and also through the line of the Davidic kings. Verses 60 through 7 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So this concludes this section here and bookends perfectly with where we start at 44.24. 44.24 starts out that God says he alone made all things, And in verse 7, he says, I am the one who does all things. So while this is a short review on Cyrus, it's a strong review 
of God's sovereignty. Underneath it, we saw a, the work of regeneration is only done through God, and Cyrus was used for a purpose and not brought into salvation. Verse 7 says, God, he forms the light and the dark and well-being and calamity. And both those mean the same thing. Light means well-being, and darkness is a metaphor for calamity. So God exclusively is behind all the ups and downs in our life, and he orders when they will happen. Well-being can also mean things like prosperity, fulfillment, and everything that makes life rich and meaningful. Some churches will stop right there and say, based on that, let's take an offering. But we see that God, God also brings calamity. And we saw a lot of that took place through God's use of Cyrus, even though we didn't go into great detail about all the battles that took place and all the people that were annihilated. In review of this passage, we are reminded of our God who is solely and sovereignly sovereignly in charge of everything and is the God who made everything in, in verse 44, 24, and in 45, 7, does all. He's the Holy One who formed and fashioned Israel and is the redemptive next of kin to his people. He's our Redeemer. And the good news is he does it all. Verse 8 is a prayer. It says, Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created. Going through this, I really believe, and I could be wrong, it's one of the things I'm going to add to my list of things to ask people when I get to heaven. I really believe Isaiah is so caught up in the majesty of the words he's been given by God that the Holy Spirit bears witness to him about how powerful this message is. I really believe Isaiah just shouts out with joy this prayer. Because we know Cyrus dominated the kingdoms of that day and God used him in order to fulfill his judgment on that people and then send his people home. Isaiah is witnessing this take place over 150 years before he's born. We can take this for granted and slip over it, but I think Isaiah saw this as mind-blowing. I think he saw it as mind-blowing. And last week in 44.3, we saw this phrase, for I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on a dry bed. Isaiah here is asking in his prayer for massive amounts of righteousness to come down. Massive amounts of righteousness to come down and salvation and righteous living to be the result of that. So this never happens again. And one item of note I want you guys to get from this because we don't see it reading the English version of what was written here. 
The words righteousness have different meanings here. In verse, in verse 8, they have a special meaning. The first one used in regards to the heaven raining it down is given in a masculine form of that noun. It's masculine. And then the second one of righteousness, where it describes the result of that righteousness coming down, being reined up and bearing fruit, is a feminine verse of that noun. So what's so cool about that, like we talked about last week? We talked about the relationship. Jesus said he is the groom and his people are the bride. I can't, I can't help but see that here. We have Jesus coming down, reigning righteousness, and the result is his people living in righteousness. That's just so cool. I wanted to share that because, like I said, we don't see that in the English form written. So God ends this prayer for fulfillment by reassuring us, by telling us that he is the Lord, has done what no one else, has done what no one else but himself can do. The tense used here means I am determined to do so. He is determined to do it by himself. Let's pray. Jesus, you are just so amazing, and we see that all through this word. Just so amazing. That we see you as our deliverer written in the words of the Old Testament. And people are boggled by the fact that Cyrus could be named 150 years before his birth. But even though we know you were with God from the beginning, your first coming, your first advent, we see it all through the book of Isaiah. And it's amazing. Help us to continue to grow in our ability to love you more, love you more to obey you more, to work onto this path of sanctification, to really take our head knowledge into a heart knowledge, to really surrender our lives to you, to stop seeking control of everything in our life, to satisfy our own desires. But Father, may, as we point out often, may we arise in the morning, open your word, and see what your plan is for us that day. So we know we're ready. When you give us a divine appointment, we're ready to give your word and give your hope to those that are hungry and thirsty. We just love you so much. Amen.